Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, Today, I am not preaching. Weston McManus is preaching. Megan and Weston have been here for a long time. They've served in all sorts of roles, and Weston in, in particular, you can come on up, Weston has led um, his home group and taught in his home group for years. He has taught our theology class um, for years, and I am super excited for him to be preaching this morning and for the sermon that you are about to hear. So ladies and gentlemen, Weston McManus! How was that? He'd be doing it two or three more times. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, people online. Thanks for being with me for the next three and a half hours. Um, uh, I'm Weston, and I like to joke when I'm a little bit nervous. So, uh, Thanks, Jeff, for allowing me to give a sermon today. Uh, I'm really, really honored. Uh, and the reason... Um, for those of you who don't know, it, that I've had enough time in the past couple of months uh, is because I resigned from my position in late May. Um, I resigned from my job because uh, I got a new boss, and he wanted to do things that way, and I wanted to do things that way, and couple that with the idea that I feel like God called me a couple of years ago to burst the bubble uh, of where I was uh, at, and it was a relatively quick exit. Um, so I've had time to prepare and write a guest sermon, and I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, I'm really honored, so thank you, Jeff. Uh, as of this week, I still don't have a job, and I'll be honest, during this time, I've had a lot of time to think about the end of my previous job, what went wrong, and channel a lot of my negative emotions towards the, my nemesis, the enemy who forced my resignation, my previous boss. After 16 years of being with the same company, uh, without really any poor performance reviews or you know, much, I felt, and I, if I'm being honest, I probably still feel a little bit entitled uh, to have things ended a little bit better than the way that they ended um, and the way I was treated at the end. But if I'm honest, his intention for how everything went down was probably not directed at me directly. Probably, if I'm being honest, even more honest, he was probably trying to do his job. Um, and he was probably trying to do what he thought was right. And surely I'm never 100% right. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but so uh, I was forced to answer the question, why did I spend so much time demonizing him? And it, it started me answering the, uh, I started theorizing about the question. Theoretically, was he my enemy? Is he my enemy? What is an enemy? Or who is an enemy? One of the things that I was able to do this summer was to volunteer at the Raleigh Dream Center uh, in part of their homeless mission. Um, I've only done it once. If anybody else is interested in that, come and talk to me because I really want to do it uh, a few more, or, you know, several more times. So if you're interested, come talk to me a little bit later. But anyways, one of the biggest takeaways was a conversation we had with a guy who knew his scripture. 
And at first, we, uh, it was a little bit contentious, but it really got very aggressive towards the end, not because we were on the same page, but because we were in opposite directions. Now, he's a black Hebrew nationalist, which I'm not going to get into the finer details of what that means, but basically because of um, my race and my bloodline, he did not think that uh, the, the character of God was described as not being loving and only... Um, that uh, salvation was only for people who attained that certain bloodline. Um, so we ended up obviously debating a little bit about God's character. I mean, he, he, read, he knew the scriptures. He knew the New Testament. And we told him that, hey, man, Jesus in the New Testament, he's, he's about love. That's why we're out here. We're here to love you. To which he answered the question, or he said, man, you don't love me. How do you love me? And after we disengaged, I thought about that. After I went to sleep that night, on the way home, I thought about it. I went to sleep thinking about that. Like, man, how, how am I supposed to love this guy? It's clear, like, he was angry, and I was an enemy to him. So it, it got me back to this whole theoretical, like, if, if somebody's an enemy, do I get to choose them? Do they choose me? Uh, what really makes an enemy? And how should I be loving them? And then a couple of weeks later, I heard Timothy's story here at church. For those of you who hadn't heard a story, it's, it's pretty amazing, but Timothy is Jeff's neighbor, and he was uh, raised in Egypt, uh, Islam, and he converted to Christianity, and as a result of his conversion, he was beat to a bloody pulp by his community. Um, but when he was up here talking a couple of weeks ago, you could see the love and compassion that he had for those people. And I thought to myself, man, that's no longer theory. That's practical. That's practically your enemy and how to love them. That's awesome. I want to be like that. So what I want to talk to you today about is how do I, how do we practically love our enemy? And in the end, I want you to remember three things. The Sermon on the Mount, Common Grace, and Ted Lasso. And if you don't know what or who any of these things are, hopefully you'll learn something today at the end. Uh, I, or I've learned a lot preparing for this, and at the end we'll have um, a bonus of how, to actually love, how you can actually love somebody this week. So, um, love your enemies. Uh, this is the verse that has been the root of my wonder. Can we go to the next slide? Oh, next slide. There we go. All right, so this is the verse that's been the root of my wonder. This is from Matthew, uh, which is one of the Gospels, or one of the first four books of the New Testament. And so far in this book, Jesus had been going to towns performing miracles to establish his authority and preaching to people over proper interpretations of Old Testament scripture. And here he is on the Sermon of the Mount doing the same. Now, a little bit of, of the background of the people who would be at the Sermon of the Mount, who, he'd be, uh, who would be listening to this, in the time frame of where they were at, the Roman, the, it was underneath the Roman Empire, and the way that it was split was basically a 3% ruling class and a 97% have-nots. There was no middle class, which is like mind-boggling for me to even think about because of where we live at today. So if I'm in this story, I'm probably going to be associating myself more closely with the 3% class. Uh, but that's not who um, Jesus was speaking to. He was speaking to the 97%, which is why he starts the sermon. Can you go to the next slide? Um, 
Next slide. He starts uh, with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this, is, this is the layout of the Sermon on the Mount, in which he wants to start by um, uplifting the downtrodden. So he starts with the Beatitudes, the blessed are the, and you've heard it, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. And all of this establishes the relationships to the people who are on the, the have-nots between what God finds righteous as compared to what the ruling class would have you believe. Now, the next part, and what we're going to be focusing on a lot on today, is the six antitheses. Um, and the six antitheses all start, you have heard, referring to uh, public culture. And then Jesus goes on to uh, clarify what is true. Now, the love for your enemies is the final antithesis. And, or antithesis. and I want you guys to remember this word because it's going to come up later. So put that in your back pocket. Uh, one last point of clarification. As you read through this, you might be thinking that this is the way that God wants us to act, and it, it is true. But I want to be very clear in saying that this is not uh, Jesus' instructions for how we earn our way into heaven. This is in the beginning of the story of Matthew, but as the story unfolds, we learn the full extent of Jesus' fulfillment of the prophecy that we can't earn God's grace through doing good things. So Jesus here is demonstrating that we do things out of thankfulness that Jesus, in an act of compassion, love, mercy, and grace, sacrificed himself. Like, if you're dangling off a cliff and somebody pulls you up from that cliff, you're probably going to want to make them dinner to show appreciation. But the, them pulling you up off the cliff is not contingent upon you making dinner for them that night or that you make them dinner every Friday night thereafter. He's not going to throw you back off the cliff um, as part of that deal. And, but to show thankfulness, we want to do th uh, things that he says are good things. We want to make dinner. So this is, this is the analogy, and I'm going with it, so you guys are going with it too. Um, so back to the passage. Um, you've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So what is, what is or who is a neighbor? We talked about this last year during our neighboring series, and the conclusion that Jeff reached is that we're not 100% clear on the definition of who a neighbor is, but we're pretty sure that it starts at a next-door neighbor, and you can go from there. And neighbors are easy to love. Like, next-door neighbors are really easy to love, right? My back-door neighbor is one of those ridiculously talented handymen with a seemingly unlimited patience for a bumbling handyman wannabe. And uh, so he's really easy to love. So Adam, if you're watching, thank you. You rock, man. Um, but to a Jew in attendance uh, at the Sermon on the Mount, they would, be, they would understand what the common interpretation, what they have heard as a neighbor is meant to be uh, the Jewish community, which by contrast would make all non-Jews an enemy according to the doctrine that the Pharisees were teaching. Uh, now, the Pharisees were the, kind of the, the ruling authority on a, a lot of the Jewish church at the time. And the Pharisees taught that they were honoring God by despising other races. And the, interpret the interpretation comes from Deuteronomy, in which God had explicitly told the Jewish, as they were re-entering the Promised Land, to eliminate the tribes surrounding the Promised Land. And that is really, really difficult to hear. It's difficult for me to work through, and I hate to skim through that because there's so much depth to unpack there. Uh, and it certainly sits heavy on my mind and probably a lot of yours minds too. But I do want to be clear, and this is what Jesus is making clear, 
that nowhere in the Old Testament does it say to love your generic neighbor and hate your generic enemy. The big takeaway is that scripture, that scripture that the Pharisees were misinterpreting, was for a certain time and place. And so Jesus sets the record straight here. So what is the broader implication of this correction about our definition of an enemy as it pertains to us today? Is it your boss or your previous boss? Um, is it a homeless man who yells obscenities at you? Is it a group of Muslims beating you to death? Is it a guy who just cut you off in traffic? Is it, could it be your neighbor? Honestly, so wh when I started this whole thing, I wanted to really focus in on the definition of what an enemy was. It was really important for me to find out what the definition of an enemy was so that I could understand how I'm supposed to love, uh, love them. But what he's doing here, what Jesus is ultimately doing here is saying, don't worry about the definitions. And so I was kind of like amazed and delighted that he's saying, all I'm trying to do here is eliminate the division of love for a neighbor and love for an enemy. There's no more love for them and us. It's only love for us. Now, just to camp out here for a minute, Jeff and I had discussed when I was preparing for this um, that in our society today, we, it's highly polarized, and it's really easy to pick a side and feel comfortable that there's a large number of people that probably agree with you and that the rest of the people are probably just uh, trying to make difficult, uh, trying to be difficult to us or get in our way. Is it because we want enemies? Uh, I don't think so, but I'd say that it's probably easier. Uh, but it's probably easier to have an enemy than to admit that we have our own shortcomings. So Jeff mentioned to look at the story of Cain and Abel. So Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's son. This is at the beginning of the narrative of our larger story, and Cain killed his brother Abel because he wanted to look better in front of God. Even from the beginning of our narrative, we desperately want to be told that we're good and, created, uh, and create enemies to contrast ourselves to make ourselves look better in front of God, or to just not just in front of God, in front of other people. That's what we do. So smart versus dumb, black versus white, donkey versus elephant. Jesus is saying to eliminate the contrast authoritatively proclaiming to eliminate the contrast. So why should we love them? You may have heard this before, but it's really important here to, dis to distinguish the difference between uh, the, use, the word used for love here. Now, English, we're really lazy about the use of the word love. I love God. I love you on my wedding day. I love avocado toast. Like, we are really linguistically uncreative. And um, though, but in the Greek translation, the best translation we have of the Old Testament, they actually had three different interpretations of love that we translate in our English Bible to love. Uh, and that is romantic love, or eros, brotherly love, or philos, or philios, and agape, which is love for God. So what is actually being said here is, you have heard that it is said, agape your neighbor, but I tell you, agape your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, why on earth should we love our, agape love our enemies? Well, the next verse tells us here, uh, because of common grace. Now, common grace is a, a term that I had never heard before, 
until uh, prepping for this, but I'm so excited about it that I'm going to tell you guys, and hopefully you guys will remember this. Um, well, so the next verse is that you, uh, could you go back real quick? Thank you. Um, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God sends us all rain and gave us a planet for us to grow crops on. Why? He gave us life in the first place. Why? Because of common grace. Common grace is the, and I'll read this, this is a quote, common grace is the idea that all men have certain benefits in life. God is not dealing with them according to what they are or according to what they do to him. He loves us absolutely disinterested in what is in us. Which is, it's it's mind-blowing. So why is Jesus telling you to love your enemies? Is it to turn them into friends, to gain favor because of pacifism? Uh, If you're nice to them, they'll be nice to you. Well, remember, this is agape. This is not philios or eros. This is not even like. You don't have to like your enemies, which is great because I don't get along with everybody, and I don't like everybody, and I'm assuming that's the same for everybody else in the room. But I must love them because God loves them as much as he loves me. Our treatment of others uh, must never depend upon um, what they are or upon what they do to us. And this is absolutely foolish. And you see in the next verse, can you go to the next slide? If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be par- um, we'll get to the last one in a little bit. And so, undeserved common grace is, it seems foolish to us. We don't earn anything as a result of this. Agape is foolish, but here Jesus calls us to be an instrument of common grace. I mean, isn't that kind of nuts? You get to be the rain sent to other people, whether they're unrighteous or unrighteous, even though you yourself are unrighteous. This passage comes after an an antithesis where Jesus says that if you are sued and the only thing you have left to sue for is your underwear, then give them your your cloak too. And that is actually from the Jewish law. You were not allowed to sue somebody for their outer coat, but you were allowed to sue somebody for their underwear. So what Jesus is saying is that if somebody is bold enough that the only thing you have left is to sue for your underwear, just go ahead and give them your cloak too. Now, in other words, stand there butt naked in the middle of the courtroom. And I can only imagine, like, if I was looking at this, I'd be like, uh, Jesus, you, you sure about that, man? Like, that sounds kind of sounds foolish. Uh, <laughs> but in this, case, in this case, he's saying, be foolish by not retaliating against the person who just sued you for your underwear. But in this verse, he's taken a step further. An author put it this way um, about the contrast between the previous antithesis and this one. Negative confirmation shows that a man should be dead to himself, dead to self-interest, dead to concern about himself. But our Lord goes very much further here. We are told we must positively love these people, not just don't strike back, but positive in our attitudes towards them. Our Lord is at pains to have us see that our neighbor must of necessity include our enemy. Now, I want to be sensitive here that this doesn't mean let people walk over you 
walk all over you. But again, that's another sermon for another day. There's, there's uh, just so much to unpack there. But the short of the long is how do we love our enemies? Foolishly in the eyes of men. In fact, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the references that Jesus has is the Old Testament speaks of how to treat a generic enemy in Proverbs through one of Solomon's saying of wisdoms. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, burning coals doesn't mean actually doing that, if anyone's thinking that, sickos. <laughs> but it means to, that they're going to be mad because you're actively loving them. And God loves that you are actively loving them. Giving food to your enemy, I mean, imagine giving food to a starving member of the Taliban. Or giving that promotion to your nemesis coworker. It seems foolish. And we're called to do things that seem foolish to give glory to God. So, speaking of foolish, has anyone watched Ted Lasso? Got a couple people. Got Ted Lasso over here. There he is. All right. Uh, if you haven't heard about it, uh, if you haven't, you've probably at least heard about it because it's this cultural phenomenon. It's a show on Apple TV uh, about a uh, Jason Sudeikis, who is a successful college football coach who goes over to England to be the coach of a professional soccer team. So it's a classic fish-out-of-water trope, but it's absolutely hilarious. And what makes it different, the reason that I'm bringing it up today, is the only reason you tune in to watch is because you can't help but love Ted Lasso. And Ted Lasso is a bit of a Jesus archetype, wanting to love everyone at the risk of personal sacrifice, often saying things that look extremely foolish to those around him. Now, the analogy stops when we see his own imperfections, but it is someone you are genuinely rooting for because of the positive values associated with his ability to show love and forgiveness so readily. And I hate to give spoilers. I, I'm not, I'm not going to be that guy so I'm going to keep this generic as possible, that the climatic scene of season one comes in an act of complete selfless forgiveness. And you get to watch the dominoes fall as it affects the character arcs of all the, uh, all the characters in the story positively. And it's not through slapstick comedy, it's through genuine heartwarming scenes. And it's not even sitcom cheesy. It's realistic enough that you start to imagine a world with more Ted Lasso's. And this is what the uh, we the the sorry, and this is what we were promised as viewers of the show, that we were pleasantly rewarded that if we allow ourselves to invest into this basically realistic character, that he wouldn't let us down, unlike every other TV show or series that we've been watching recently. Now, originally, I was going to mention just the archetype and highlight the Christ-like qualities. But then I read this review by a critic, and based on his Twitter feed, he's presumably non-Christian. But the, the insight that he gave, was just, it's just it's too brilliant to ignore, thinking about that this is coming from a non-Christian perspective. So he first quotes uh, a woman from the marketing news in 2015 and then he, uh, about why we, don't, uh, why we don't want to get let down by putting our faith into a story. And so she, she writes, right now there aren't really any and this is kind of long, so just bear with me. I promise we're getting there. Right now, there aren't really any prescriptive, aspirational narrative stories because we've woken up from 2,000 years of it. So you hear the cynicism from the general non-Christian culture. 
right there. We were fools. Yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. was cool, and I guess Gandhi was cool, but most of these things like Nazism, communism, and capitalism, and all the isms were all just really manipulative stories. We don't trust the storytellers anymore, except in very few circumstances. Even our movies are about time travel, moving backwards, because we just don't want to go down that single path. And um, the critic continues, without a sense of narrativity, without beginnings or endings, without arcs and goals, we found ourselves stuck in a state of presentism. This is reflected in all the fiction of the last 20 years, from The Sopranos to Game of Thrones to Lost to Seinfeld to Family Guy to the multiverse of the DC and Marvel transmedia franchises. Our fiction keeps us suspended in a perpetual state of right now. No goals, no growth, no catharsis. And we had fun for a while living in a re uh, reality devoid of narrative patterns. And here's the reflection about Ted Lasso. I think we're once again ready for prescriptive and aspirational narratives. We ache for noble goals and for forward motion. And I think we're seeing a socio-cultural shift in our pop culture like Ted Lasso. There will always be pessimists and nihilists. Ted Lasso doesn't present a world without bullies and naysayers, but we can choose to reject that worldview. I do. And the best way to fight it in our fiction and in our everyday lives is to model antithetical behavior to it. There's that word. You know, when one gets gloomy about the state of the world, and I do, the best antidote is to, do out, is to go out and do something kind. This critic, uh, assumably non-Christian, is, is saying here that our world that we occupy is most yearning for antithetical behavior acted out. So I may disagree with the very last uh, word kind here, but I think the gist remains absolutely the same. The character created through Ted Lasso is a reflection for what we as a culture desperately want in a person. People are yearning for a Sermon on the Mount against modern-day Western culture, a foolish, undeserved, forgiving, redemptive love. That's what we want. And we're culturally in a moment where we hear that people are desperate for vengeance and justice. But the greater story, the true story, is that of Jesus and common grace. We need a Jesus who won't let us down that we can invest in and are longing for instruments of common grace to come into our lives. And maybe the fact that this show is so popular is a bit of, a ref of that reflection. So what do we do? Well, the very last verse, uh, the very last um, you know, verse in this passage is to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As a reminder, he's given this sermon to the, uh, on the mount before anyone fully understands that he's going to fulfill the prophecy. Um, so perfection is what he's demanding, but people really don't, won't understand that they are incapable of achieving perfection. And if I'm honest... I'm not perfect, guys. Uh, even after all this prep, I can't, I can't help but think about loving enemies and loving neighbors as very differently. And based upon my very scientific research, it turns out that people are hard to love. Can you show my scientific research next? There it is. So it turns out that everybody is hard to love. <laughs> But I want to be able to show that even the harshest of enemies, that Jesus, the love that Jesus shows me. <laughs> Y'all digesting it now, you see the UNC thing. Okay. If I ever wanted to get to the point of agaping someone who wants to beat me up for my beliefs, then I'm a long way from that. 
And I'm personally the type of guy that needs to step incrementally. Maybe you're a person that can go and just jump to the very end of this. I'm not. I recently read a study that people don't even want to write thank you notes because they were afraid of looking foolish. <laughs> In every experiment, letter writers overestimated how awkward recipients would feel about the gesture and underestimated how surprised and positive the recipients would feel. <laughs> According to the study, they conflated their confidence of being able to write the note versus just doing the act. And I'm, I'm sure I fall in there. And I, anyone else? That's just kind of nuts. Um, but just to, reiter to reiter reiterate this, as one author put, the Sermon on the Mount is not a form of self-improvement. It helps us to envision a different identity for ourselves and for this world and help us to commit to concrete enactments of God's grace, justness, and life-affirming giving purposes for everyone. So what are the concrete enactments that we can do? How can I lasso myself towards antithetical action that uh, uses me as an instrument of common grace towards my enemies. Well, we have action items. One of my favorite things about our home group is at the end when we assign action items, and that's basically, hey, here's your homework for the week, and when you do it, text everybody on our WhatsApp chain and let us know that you did it. And I'll be honest, man, those little buzzes on my phone are like by far the best part of my week. I absolutely love them. Um, so what I want uh, for us as a church is to have an action item, to think about someone in your life who you may consider an enemy, the coworker, or the ex-girlfriend or boyfriend or ex-spouse, the person who relentlessly argues about masks on Facebook. And I want to challenge you to do something that will burn their head with the coal of God's love. Actively do something that helps them. Bring a meal and have a face-to-face -face conversation with them. Call someone and tell you them that, uh, that you forgive them if they wronged you. Or ask for forgiveness. I mean, forgiveness is a humbling action in and of itself that often repair, uh, bears repeating over and over and over. And forgiveness is ultimately what Jesus' story is about. Um, as an example for this week, um, hey, Alan, please forgive me for taking too long for doing my first sermon. Thanks for hanging in there. I love you. Um, and after you do your act of agape, I want you to tell someone, or uh, close, uh, I want you to tell someone that you did it and encourage them to do it the same. So we have a look around you, and if you're at home, know that there are people here as well, that we have an established community of people that can meet outside of this church building on Sunday mornings. Our main example is that we have home groups, if you don't have that, there's a kickball tournament in two weeks. You should come. It's going to be really fun. Um, and it'll help you learn about new or established home groups. You can join mine. I, I'd love for you to join ours. Uh, but home, home groups are a wonderful way of holding each other accountable and maturing spiritually. And that's where the practicality of how hard it is to get to a point of agape, or that's, how, that's where the practicality uh, of showing agape uh, gets to us. I need you guys to hold me accountable. I mean, the idea of doing something for an enemy like my previous boss or a guy who yelled obscenities at me, like, that's, that, that's not in my nature. And so 
I need you to hold me accountable. So this week, I'm going to encourage you all, me included, to do something good. Our culture is desperate to have a love that looks foolish to those around me, or uh, around us, and you and I can be that. And then share in that celebration of agape and common grace with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Today we're going to take communion. Um, so I, I want everybody to kind of take a minute, he- moment here to pray about who your enemies are and why sh- we should all be thankful. And, uh, I'm going to ask the band to come back up too as well. Thank you guys. Uh, to take a moment to pray about who our enemies are. What we could do for them that would really burn coal on their foreheads to show God's love. And then think about the people that you would want to share this with. Not as an act of getting a gold star, but as an act of showing how thankful you are that Jesus showed you forgiveness. And that's what communion is about. Um, so we'll ta- uh, let's take a moment to pray about... Um, to pray about all that. Dear God, uh, thank you for showing me common grace. Thank you for showing me the love of Jesus. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to be an instrument or a tool of common grace to those around me. It's, it doesn't make any sense because I'm not perfect. And yet you're giving me the opportunity to represent you and to be a law um, to love those around me on your behalf. It, it doesn't make any sense, God. And so help me to understand this foolish love, this, this love that you so readily give to all of us. I mean, at the story of Cain and Abel, God, after Cain killed Abel, you promised not to kill, you, you promised to protect Cain from other people who would want to murder him. It doesn't make sense. But that's the kind of God that you are. You love us so much that, it, that despite what we do, you still want us to succeed. So help me as a person to recognize my own shortcomings with respect to how perfect of a God you are. And help me to love my enemies this week. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.